This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one. With Nicole Claygood and Cooper Linton, here's the host of Aging Matters, Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Good Saturday evening to you. Jason Kong here with Mr. Cooper Linton with Transitions Life Care. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. It's great to be here this evening. Excellent, excellent. And we've got Nicole Cleggett with Transitions Guiding Lights. How are you, Nicole? I'm awesome. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, and I'm excited about the show tonight because we're going to focus uh, a lot on end-of-life care. And and Cooper and Nicole, uh, I I guess we're going to dive into some of the issues surrounding this because there are some that uh, tend to pop up. Well, we do a tremendous job in the United States uh, in our society about avoiding and denying the conversations of end-of-life care. And we talk about a lot of topics on this show. We sometimes don't always get into discussions around hospice and palliative medicine, and yet we know from the feedback uh, through our social media that that is a big topic for folks. They have a lot of questions about it. They have misconceptions Mm -hmm. about it. But probably the biggest thing they have is simply fear. Yeah, and that's really getting down to the heart of the matter, I think, is, you know, just as human beings, we are really afraid of death. I mean, let's well, just put it out there. We're I mean, wired to live and thrive. That's mm-hmm. how we That's how we make it as a species. Fight, fight, fight. Right. And I think we also work uh, and live in a society with some false perceptions, mm-hmm. um, false images of what healthcare really looks like, Mm -hmm. what uh, the navigation of serious illness looks like. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes it's as simple as the way CPR is covered on television. Uh You know, 30 or 40% of the time, uh, if if you're on drama TV, you have CPR, you're going to be fine. That statistic You have a breakfast the next morning. I mean, full egg breakfast and bacon and biscuits. uh, Unfortunately, (laughs) it's just not real. Right. Uh, CPR is an awesome thing, mm-hmm. but it's not a great tool at end of life because, well, you were already in a pretty rough spot before your heart stopped. So it's really isn't about CPR. It's about a hospice mm-hmm. and the fear associated uh, that I think people associate with hospice. And uh, recently I was in a discussion with a palliative care physician and I said, I'm, I'm really concerned that we continue to talk about hospice and palliative care as if it's an alternative to treatment, mm-hmm. as opposed to it simply being an alternative treatment when there's not a cure. Why is hospice and palliative medicine not considered, in some people's minds, really the treatment of the person? And I think we're really geared as a medical society to always try to fix everything. And at some point, you have to look at a situation and say, we can't fix this part of the body. This is not going to come to an end that's going to have some sort of a cure. And so then I think a lot of times physicians and healthcare workers just get extremely uncomfortable and they don't say it to the family. There's an awful lot of diseases we don't have a cure for, but we also don't have a cure for mortality. And so at the end of this, it doesn't matter what illnesses you may have and frankly may overcome. And, and we've done some shows mm-hmm. about the tremendous strides that we've made with cancer, tremendous strides we've made with heart disease. But everyone who's cured of cancer and everyone who has excellent treatment of heart disease eventually 
dies of something. And so what is our plan to address end-of-life care, and how does that incorporate our caregivers? You know, I found an an interesting article from the New York Times that was talking about what can we do to make end-of-life care more peaceful. And they surveyed hundreds of people that were within the last six months of life and their caregivers. And what they wanted was less to do with you know, what can we do to try to continue on my life the way I'm living it with chemo and radiation and all these different curative measures, but they actually just wanted to feel like they were connected to someone and something. I think a lot of people who are facing end of life feel extremely isolated because they, and we've talked about this in other shows, people have a, a gut instinct when the time is near. And sometimes we just keep trying to push more things at them because maybe we're not ready for their time. I think you're right. The patient often knows and the family's not always willing to talk about it. And it's interesting sometimes when we admit patients into hospice, uh, the family is saying, please don't talk about end of life. Please don't talk about hospice with the patient. And the patient then is privately saying to our staff, please don't tell my family I'm dying. And we're like, (laughs) <laughs> if, if we could all just hit the pause button a minute yep. and have a little compassionate courage, uh, maybe a lot of compassionate courage, mm-hmm. to talk about that we all in our hearts know we're mortal. Yeah. And we know that everybody we love is mortal. And so if we can jointly come up with a way to put a plan together as a family, then we focus on those things that really matter, mm-hmm. which typically isn't more medicine. For some people, that's what they want, right. but it's a minority. Most people say, I want more family. And I think a lot of times, you know, I've been talking to a, a, an amazing uh, nationally known um, palliative care physician, and he was talking to me a lot about the fact that they're just still not trained. They're not trained to really listen intently to what the patients and the families need, and they're not trained to really be emotionally there and present for the families. And it's not that they don't want to, because most people who are physicians enter that world because they want to help people. But when it comes down to, this is what I've been trained to do for a person, and then what I've been trained to do isn't going to work, they're not really sure how to bridge that gap, which I think is, is potentially a gap in our educational system. I think there's a gap in the educational system. I also think that there's an issue with pace. Mm-hmm. I don't mean uh, the the Medicare program pace. Speed, I mean, I mean, speed. <laughs> yes. cadence, the yes. cadence of our work. You know, if we if we look at how long a physician has in an encounter with a patient nowadays, it's somewhere around twelve to seventeen minutes. Yeah, sometimes not that long. Mm-hmm. So listen, well, that, what if they're in the hospital and they're doing rounds and consults? Actually, sometimes it's even shorter in the face-to-face encounter. Mm -hmm. How are we going to talk about issues of what is it that I really want? What matters to me? How do I engage my caregiver? We can review lab tests in a few minutes, Mm -hmm. but we can't have a deep dialogue in an eight-minute encounter. We just can't. Mm -hmm. I mean, this segment of this radio is going to last longer (laughs) than eight minutes. Mm -hmm. And whose job is it? I mean, maybe it's not. Maybe... Maybe, you know, we need to look at our healthcare system and say, perhaps, you know, we should have more social workers or support staff or chaplains or I, I don't workers. know. We have some nurses that do incredible work in that. And, and I think part of it is educational training. But the other part of it, some people are drawn to having these deeper conversations mm-hmm. and some people are not. Right. It's not right or wrong. Um, not everybody is drawn to be a mechanic or a neurologist mm-hmm. or a carpenter. And so I think we need different people in different in different roles in our lives. Mm-hmm. And we need those people in the medical profession, 
in the healthcare profession that can open up what can be a painful yet liberating discussion. Because if we're liberated from the notion of avoiding death, we can actually embrace how we're going to live until we die. And that changes the dialogue dramatically. So it comes down to preservation of life versus the cost of quality of life. Absolutely. I mean, we and sometimes it gets phrased as the benefit burden. Mm-hmm. What's the benefit of whatever medication we're putting someone on in comparison to the burden of what that does to their body? Um, but I think there's also this inherent desire to just embrace the time we have left. And when we talk about that, there's no way to separate it from our family caregivers mm-hmm. who are on the very same journey. They're not terminal. Mm-hmm. But they, too, are mortal, and they encounter that when they encounter the more near-term mortality of someone they love. Which is another reason why, you know, you and I are always sitting here talking about advanced care planning and the importance Mm. of making your wishes known before you're in the middle of the crisis. That is so super important as well. So if I haven't been clear on my personal opinion on this, if you haven't filled out your advanced directives, please do so right now. Mail a copy to me for proof. No, (laughs) I I am kidding about mailing the copy. But if we can be of assistance, Transitions Life Care does help people with advanced care planning, and we're happy to do that. Yeah, it's super important to have those conversations so that when you're faced with some of these very difficult things that will happen to all of us, every one of us, we're going to die one way or another, whether it's getting hit by a bus or cancer. Or well, I don't know. I've heard a guy say I'm going to live forever, and so far, so good. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, that's true. Uh, he's, I guess he's doing okay, but uh, at some point, that's going to catch up. I saw him limping the other day. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm hedging my bet. <laughs> You'd be wise to do that. Well, we're going to tackle some more of these uh, end-of-life care issues, and we'll do that right after this. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. Joined by Nicole Cleggett from Transitions Guiding Lights and Cooper Linton from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. You can find more about Transitions Life Care anytime by heading over to transitionslifecare.org. Jason Kong here with Cooper Linton and Nicole Cleggett, and we're talking all about end of life care issues. And uh, Cooper, you've, you've brought in an expert here, which is great, but uh, you know, this is. This is a subject that seems to almost be evolving in a way, in some ways, and then just kind of staying the same in many respects as well. I think our medical community is evolving in the discussion of hospice and palliative care. There's been no question about that. Uh, it's been slowly incorporated into medical training, uh, not nearly as deep as it probably needs to be, but it, that's progress. At the same time, We are still dealing with a situation in our nation, and it's true in North Carolina. It's actually true in the local uh, Triangle region as well, that 35% of all hospice patients die in one week. Uh, And it's not because hospice is causing them to die. It's because they were so late in the process when they came to hospice. And so there's kind of three statistics that stand out that I think may set the stage uh, for our guest, and and that's that, you know, over over a third of patients die in a week, fifty percent die in about three weeks, and yet the number one thing that we have heard for decades from families, when we survey them on their experience, 
is they wish they had engaged hospice care sooner. But there's no do-over. So it's a lesson learned with not many opportunities to improve going forward. And and so we have a guest today who has done a, a beautiful job of blending her professional training with her personal journey uh, and created a book called Home Hospice Navigation, which is pretty self-explanatory. Um, but we would like to welcome Judith Sands uh, to the show. And I think Judith may have the distinction of having the most professional designations <laughs> after her name of anyone we've ever been graced with on this show. So welcome, Judith. And There are uh, seven, just for the record. Yeah, seven <laughs> professional designations. Um, we... We will do a show just on her acronyms one day. But welcome welcome to the show. Thanks for writing the book, and thanks for joining us in this, this discussion. Thank you. I appreciate being here and being able to help caregivers navigate the home hospice journey. So one of the things that you said in between um, while we were on commercial break here was that dying has been removed from the home. What do you mean by that? Well, 75, 100 years ago, the dying individual was at home in their bed with their loved ones around them, their clergy, their friends, uh, easing their transition. And as more people went to the workforce and healthcare advanced, people ended up in hospitals Mm -hmm. towards end of life. And the dying process happened behind the closed doors of the ICU, the telemetry units, and families did not have that opportunity to say goodbye in a familiar setting, as well as the medical advances have prolonged the dying process. So two of the most tender times in life have been removed from the home, welcoming new life and letting life go. And, you know, when we, we look at that, people say, well, but by doing births in the hospital, we've reduced childhood, childhood deaths more and childhood mortality. But if we look at the other end of the spectrum, the mortality rate at end of life was 100% before. It's still 100%. <laughs> and every article out there suggests that's pretty stable. So, you know, we've medicalized, to your point, Judith, mortality. We have. And often... It's not a comfortable process. Mm-hmm. Many individuals do not have the opportunity to take care of, uh, take advantage of palliative care, hospice, so that they can be more comfortable and have the opportunity to close um, open issues in their lives and say their goodbyes in a way that um, could give everyone in the process some peace of mind. I was going to say there is, you know, there's a recognition of that. But to Cooper's point in the previous segment, you know, we also need to keep in mind what goes on in certain families. And, and, and some people, you know, are just not equipped to be that person to be there during end of life. And so I think there's also is insofar as, you know, folks understand that people want to pass away at home sometimes people just feel like they just can't do it and so i think that it's okay for folks that feel that way to recognize that and and to make alternate arrangements if need be too well and sometimes not passing away in your private residence Mm -hmm. is a different discussion than passing away in the icu or passing away in the hospital you know there um i'll i'll take a a personal attack on this when 
Um, my mother was ill to the point on a very, very lengthy chronic illness. There was no physical way that we could take care of her in a private residence. Mm-hmm. We could move her and did move her to a very home-like setting mm-hmm. that had 24-hour care that allowed us to spend our family time being family and not spending time trying to for me to try and pretend to be a nurse. And anyone mm-hmm. who knows me knows that at the best I can pretend. <laughs> And those situations really depend on the family dynamics, the culture, the ethnicity, uh, the amount of resources that the family has, as well as, as you mentioned, do they have the physical time to be caregivers or that ability, or are they out of town? You know, the family members often uh, caregiving is done in some cases by remote control. Uh, those people making the decision are not near the loved one. Right. We've kind of had a diaspora of, of families mm-hmm. over the last, uh, really the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we see families scattered around, and sometimes parents will move to be near one of the, one of the children. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, or as one uh, older friend of mine said, there's a lot of things I plan to do when I get old, but chasing my kids across the country is not one of them. Well, and to your point, you know, when you're saying dying has been removed from the home, yes, that's happened, but also the home has changed. You know, back in the day, you know, there wasn't a situation where there had to be most times two-person working households and, you know, going to soccer five nights a week. And and so our lives have greatly changed as well, and there's a lot more pressure. So a lot of the caregivers that I speak with and working with right now, you know, she has to have her own surgery. And she's trying to take care of her mom on hospice. And she is just, and she's got kids of her own in her home, and she's got a spouse, and she is just so utterly and completely overwhelmed that she just is at a breaking point. And so, you know, it's just really difficult to honor the wishes of a loved one sometimes when you are just so squeezed. You're depicting the sandwiched caregiver Mm -hmm. from many aspects, and these caregivers maybe the point person and the care coordinators for the family in terms of managing the caregiving process. They may not be the actual hands-on individuals, but they are going to be the ones um, who are captain of the ship. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely. So how do we live at the end of life? From my perspective, that often depends on the views of the loved one who is approaching the end. Mm -hmm. What is the tone that they are setting? As well as what is the relationship between all of the family members or the caregiving circle? We've got uh, Judith Sands here in the studio. She is the author of the book, Home Hospice Navigation, The Caregiver's Guide. And we will continue our conversation right after this break. You're listening to Aging Matters, Care and Comfort That Surrounds You, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. This is Aging Matters, Care and Comfort That Surrounds You on News Radio 680 WPTF. Joined by Nicole Claygate from Transitions Guiding Lights and Cooper Linton from Transitions Life Care, here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, Care and Comfort that Surrounds You, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680. 
WPTF. Jason Kong here with Cooper Linton, Nicole Cleggett, and our guest this evening is Judith Sands, author of the book Home Hospice Navigation, The Caregiver's Guide, and we're talking all about uh, end-of-life care issues. And uh, before we get back to uh, our conversation here, I want to remind everyone that uh, if you would like to participate in the show, you're welcome to send us an email, agingmatters at transitionslifecare.org is the email address, agingmatters at transitionslifecare.org. Oregon Cooper, uh, let's dive back into the conversation. You know, I, I like to jump right back in with the concept of that navigation, which is uh, actually in, embedded in the, the title of Judith's book. Uh, and I think one of the things that happens when we medicalize mortality and is that the medical system begins to drive the direction of care. It becomes it becomes the pilot, if you will. Is that a, is that a fair statement, yes, Judith? Yes, absolutely. And really what the whole concept of hospice and palliative medicine would be to replace that with the patient themselves being the pilot. Let them set the direction, the journey. And I think Judith touched on that in an earlier segment of what is the tone that they have? What are the values that they bring? What is the part of their culture as opposed to us telling somebody this is how your end of life should be? You tell us, right? As you referenced, uh, unfortunately, too many people don't get to hospice or do not take advantage of the hospice benefit package early enough. My mom was lucky enough to have her advanced directives and make her wishes known very early. And uh, she had the opportunity to take advantage of 11 and a half months of the hospice benefit. Now, that may startle some people who think that you have to be within six months or less, which is true, but there's a caveat to that, isn't there? That there that's is. assuming yeah. the disease follows its normal course. Is that the language? Uh, typically, one declines over time. And mom had many ups and downs along the road, but over time, it truly was a progression towards um, the ultimate um, destination. But we wanted to honor her wishes and make her destination as pleasant as possible. And she was very firm for someone who was very, was very quiet and unassuming uh, in saying that this is how she wanted the journey to go. And so you took her lead in that? We took the lead and did everything within our power to honor the wishes. Uh, we were lucky enough to be able to keep her at home, uh, able to secure caregivers, taking advantage of a long-term care policy, as well as the benefits that hospice provides so that she could be where she wanted to be, surrounded by the people she wanted to be with, and for as long as possible, participate in activities such as bingo, or uh, watching movies, those activities that were meaningful to her. So in a recent study that was done of the, of the caregivers and the patients that were on hospice, the biggest things that came out of it is what they wanted to get out of hospice, even though they didn't have as long as they were hoping to be on hospice because they accessed the benefit too late, um, were to have their spiritual needs met, which is super, super important at the end of life to be comfortable, to have their worries heard, but the biggest issue and the biggest piece of fear was that if they let go of all the medical treatments, they were going to feel abandoned. You know, there's comfort in having 
all these doctor's appointments and all these people around you all the time. And I often hear this of people who've gone through cancer treatments when they've been going through round after round after round of chemo. And then suddenly the doctor says, we believe you're in remission. We'll see you in six months. They're scared to death. They're more scared then than they were when they got the diagnosis. Yeah, well, there was somebody checking on them all the time. I mean, there was this constant engagement. Now, wait a minute. The last time I was on my own, I found out I had cancer. I mean, that's, that's the sense of it. And the routine has been upset. They've mm. had a schedule, whatever it may be, two, three times a week. It's this doctor. It's that doctor. And now this time needs to be replaced by true activities or enjoyable activities of daily living. Well, we get wrapped up into the uh, – it's back to this pace and cadence mm-hmm. issue mm-hmm. of the, the pace of care and the treatment of – of the illness and then what happens when the treatment of the illness falls away mm-hmm. and we get focused on the care of the individual and that is a different pace because you're no longer dependent on the system to set the pace you actually are setting that pace yourself because it's your care it's your journey and all the more frightening you know at end of life versus when you hear you're in remission you know and you decide to stop treatment and you're worried about being abandoned you're worried about facing all that alone because most people have not had end-of-life care planning discussions. Most people have not had those deep, meaningful conversations with family, and 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 people are just afraid of facing that future. Well, and the caregivers are afraid because they, they, they're not prepared to do this. They're used to doing. Well, <laughs> they're not always even prepared to do some of those functions themselves. I, I was talking with a hospital administrator mm-hmm. recently, and, and I said, I, I mean, no disrespect in this question, but what is the minimum number of hours that your environmental staff or housekeeping staff are required to have each year. And he said, well, we have an eight-hour minimum for them. I said, okay, so what's the minimum training that your caregiver gets when they go home to take care of this loved one? And we had a bit of a head-scratching moment. We went, well, we gave them a handout. And I said, well... And you asked them to say it back. Right. (laughs) We did the teach-back. We did the (laughs) teach-back method. Fair enough. So, you know, if we're lucky, maybe we got 30 minutes of education. Hmm. But being educated in a crisis time, mm. the retention isn't there. That's true. And we know that empirically. And one approach that I know a family used to get at the advanced directive of uh, their loved ones, they sat down at a Thanksgiving meal when all the family was ra- available and present and said to the parents, okay, tell us in front of the family gathering, what are your wishes? So we Mm -hmm. all hear it together, and we can all ask questions now because we want to honor your wishes. Because if we don't know what your wishes are, we can't let you truly be the pilot, and we can't follow your wishes in the event that you kind of lose your voice. And um, I think hospice and palliative medicine are helping to shift the conversation toward what do we want as people, mm-hmm. not do we treat as diseases. But it, you know, Jason, you touched on this a moment ago. We've made some progress, but we're a long ways from ringing the bell of success and changing the, the, the medical dialogue, much less the social dialogue. Cooper, who has the more power, I guess, to, to move the needle? Is this something that uh, you know the medical staff this needs to focus here. on more? Yeah, or I, is, it, is it on us? I think it's yes. <laughs> I, I, I really, more and, of that. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm going to say something that makes some people wig out a little bit. 
Because we, it, it's very easy to demonize, and we've heard people do this, demonize insurance companies. And I am actually beginning to see insurance companies saying, this isn't the great care. This isn't excellence. This isn't what outcomes look for. And we're going to use the bully pulpit of the checkbook to try and change the way we think about care delivery toward higher quality patient satisfaction and outcomes, not just more treatment. And that's a voice that has not usually been present in this discussion. I believe that, um, and I'm hearing this more and more, you know, with all the thousands of caregivers we serve at Transition Scotting Lights and through my work with multiple media outlets, end-of-life care is bubbling up to the top. It is all, and I'm shocked because even just a few years ago, it wasn't even mentioned, and people are, and, and of all different ethnic backgrounds, where before, you know, certain groups were a little less likely, and that's still the case, but I'm still seeing people coming together in conversation and, and just trying to find some answers and trying to make the best exit for the level, their loved ones as possible. Judith, thanks for taking your experience and your professional training and combining them into uh, an easy-to-read book that can guide people through this process. We really appreciate that. And I appreciate the opportunity of getting the message out that there are resources and support for caregivers along the home hospice journey. She is Judith Sands, author of the book, Home Hospice Navigation, The Caregiver's Guide. Uh, Judith, I'm guessing that people can find that on Amazon. Is that one way folks can can find it? Yes, they can. Or they can go to my website, judithsands.com. Excellent. judithsands.com. A quick break and back. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you. A service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. With your co-hosts, Nicole Claykett and Cooper Linton. Here's the host of Aging Matters, Jason Kong. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Jason Kong here with Nicole Claykett and Cooper Linton and... Uh, Lady and gentlemen, we, uh, we've got some, uh, some housekeeping that we need to take care of here. Well, we keep getting asked about, you know, where can I get more information? Where can I get more training as a caregiver? How do I find out about this? How do I find out about that? So part of what we want to do on this show is help promote programs that we believe will address some of the needs of the listening audience. And there are a couple of them that are coming up. One of them is not new to us. Um, <laughs> well, it's a little new. It's the it's caregiver's... my favorite soapbox. It's the caregiver's soapbox. <laughs> I know. They're all sick of hearing about that, you know. Oh, I don't know if they are or not yet. Um, <laughs> one of the things, though, that's different this year is we're not having the same conference twice. So we're going to have four conferences mm-hmm. with different content at four conferences because our attendees have asked for more programs, more classes, more opportunities to attend throughout the year, Uh, and the one is coming up next month. It is. We are less than a month away from the June 14th Caregiver Summit at the Sheraton Imperial in Research Triangle Park area, technically Durham. Very centrally located. Um, Registrations are really strong for this summit, and we're super excited about really the lineup of 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 the talks. And, you know, for those listening... 
how do we decide what we're going to talk about every year? It's actually from the people who attend. And so, right. the, you know, the you folks that us. attend, you know, they fill out an evaluation and we kind of look at, you know, what are the super popular sessions and then what do people wish we had more of that we didn't have? And, and that's really how we come up with the agenda every year. And I love the fact that this year um, we were really able to listen to the caregivers and figure out a creative way to actually create four completely different conferences because people want ongoing education and they've come to to really trust the summits and so we've been able to do that this year through a lot of work with all of our partners it, it takes a lot of time to put these on and, and folks really went the extra mile to give this and out. our speakers really gift their time that's oh, yeah. how we pull this off as our speakers come in they've recognized mm-hmm. that this is really a, an element of outreach that matters in our community and so they give us their time uh, and the organizations that uh, assemble this together are giving of their own administrative time to pull it pull it off there's some classes though one of them is one that people will probably recognize mm-hmm. which is the virtual dementia tour yes and that's when that one's really interesting so basically um, you know if, if you're caring for a loved one or if you are curious you may have a friend or family member caring for a person with dementia it actually puts you through a, a set of tasks with, I'm not going to give up their secrets, but you're basically all garbed up in such a way that you actually feel like and experience what it's like to have dementia. And so you're, you're assigned to do a number of things, and then afterwards, you know, you see how you did, and then you have a debriefing session. And that really seems to make a significant impact to really raise the empathy level for folks who are caring for a loved one, just so that they really see what that person is going through. And, it, and, it, and it's very emotional for people, but it's very, very well attended and something that folks ask us to bring back year after year there's another one that pops up and we get these questions a lot and it's legal issues for caregivers Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's a very simple thing to say there can be so many different legal issues related to caregiving which is why we often have attorneys and financial folks involved in this show Uh, but this one is focused on planning for incapacity and how to use uh, powers of attorney as well as advanced health care directives which we've talked Mm -hmm. about uh, on the show many times. So, you know, what is the role of guardianship? What's an overview of Medicaid services? Um, what's changing in the world of long-term care insurance? These are all components uh, that can seem daunting. Mm-hmm. But if you have someone who is uh, really an expert in this field, they mm-hmm. can help help you navigate this and take some of the mystery and fear out of it. Yeah, and this is actually, uh, this session is actually presented by our presenting sponsor, which is Clarity Legal Group, and Mark Costley uh, from Clarity Legal is going to be talking about this. And another change we made this year is we've actually, ha- we're going to have a series of these talks over the four summits. So it's not going to be the exact same issue time after time. And folks really have a lot of legal questions. And it's really nice to be able to talk to an individual that's, you know, gifting their time and, and really there just to, to help people understand how to manage this and, and, and you know, kind of walk that road with the caregiver. Very, very well attended. One that I think is going to be really interesting this year as well um, is really how to build that care team. We talk a lot on the show about that caregiver burden and, you know, that superhero effect when you first go into the caregiving journey, you really feel like, and you're, you are full of energy mm-hmm. and adrenaline to get it done. And then that's when everyone's asking you, can I help? Can I help? And you say no, and then smack, you hit a wall. And then at that time, nobody's there. And so this, this talk, I think is really going to talk about, you know, how can you really build a team around you to, for the long haul? You know, it's the marathon. It's not the sprint. That's where the grind comes in, where mm-hmm. caregivers get worn down, worn out, 
um, their own health starts to suffer. So uh, understanding that it's okay to build a care team and getting some guidance on how to do it is critical. There's also a discussion about Medicare. Now, some folks may have seen new Medicare cards coming out. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then they're hearing, oh, there's Medicare fraud, and mm-hmm. they're hearing all these. Be careful. You may not have your real card. It's, right. It's yeah. scams. Yeah. It, yeah. Honestly, it is people preying um, on confusion and uh, the vulnerability of our Medicare population. And so we're going to have a, a program about being a good steward of your Medicare and how to protect yourself and um, understanding your Medicare benefits uh, understanding what this new card is in the first place, mm-hmm. and it's just a uh, a conversation about the the Medicare benefits and how to access them, and how to take care of that special information you have as a Medicare recipient, so that you can't be taken advantage of. So besides all of the great sessions that we have, you know, just to give people a sense, you know, it is it is a full day. I mean, if you can't make it for the full day, you know, because of your caregiving, uh, we certainly understand that. But, you know, we do have a full day worth of sessions. There is a lunch that's provided. We're going to have a speaker during lunch as well. And then on top of that, there are dozens upon dozens of resources available at the actual summit. So these are all different organizations that you may intersect with or need to connect to, even if it's not time now, maybe in the future future, anything from home care agencies to the Department on Aging to assisted living communities to folks that focus on uh, mobility and transportation. And, and it's really a great time for the family caregiver to actually connect with those resources, find out the types of services that they provide and keep them in their arsenal uh, for the future. Absolutely. Now, we also have a, another opportunity for education coming up, and, and that's even a little sooner. It is. It's on uh, June 8th. Yep. It's a Friday, June 8th, and it's going to take place in Cary. Um, and it's called Accelerating the Pace, Clinical Strategies, Research Advances, and Advocacy Efforts in Dementia. So this particular uh, symposium is focused strictly around dementia, not just Alzheimer's, but mm-hmm. Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's-related dementia. And it's being put on by the Alzheimer's Association uh, in conjunction with Wake AHEC, MetLife, and Transitions Life Care. And uh, not to toot your horn, but you are the moderator, I do believe. <laughs> I am privileged to moderate that, and I'll, I'll do a, a quick opening presentation uh, in the morning to kind of kickstart the day and set the stage for uh, what looks like a tremendous lineup of four uh, researchers who specialize in understanding uh, dementia and the impacts of dementia. And then there's also uh, a gentleman from the Alzheimer's Association, uh, Scott Herrick, who is the advocacy expert about public policy issues uh, in North Carolina as they relate to Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's-related dementias. And so how this is a little different for the Caregiver Summit, that for those that are listening, and this is really focused on um, research and information, and it's, it's definitely a high level uh, of information for folks who are really curious to know what's going on in the country and around this state around Alzheimer's and dementia-related care. It's a deep dive. It is. And so we're going to have this uh, conference actually up on the Aging Matters page on the WPTF website for folks who might want to register. You can just click on the icon and, and get to that link, and that's going to be again on Friday, June 8th in Cary. So again, it goes if you go to the Aging Matters page on WPTF, PTF's website, you'll see an image for accelerating the pace. That's the uh, symposium. And if you click on that, it'll take you to the registration. 
And yep. same thing for care, uh, Caregiver Summit as well. That's right. WPTF.com. Head over to the host section. Look for the uh, smiling picture of Cooper and Nicole <laughs> hanging out in front of the trees. And uh, that'll take you to the Aging Matters page. And uh, as you both said, the uh, the images are there for, uh, for both of those events. You can click on those and uh, find all the information that you need. We are just about out of time. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'll be back again next week. We do this program every Saturday evening at 7. And we hope that you will join us next week. On behalf of Cooper Linton and Nicole Cleggett, I am Jason Kong. Thanks so much for listening. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. For more information, log on transitionslifecare.org.